say all is well. Just this is the best it's gonna be, all is well. The goal is to engage with great grit and honesty and say, God, get in here and change me so I can be used and really experience the fullness of your kingdom. And I think we could all look at each other honestly and go, I don't think I've arrived. I'm not there yet. I have heroes who were either more in tune with God, more capable of acting in faith, um, more discerning, more wise than I, and I endeavor to be that way. And so just each week, I want your commitment to be, God, open me up, like speak to me, challenge me, and then I know good will come from it. Don't come going, make me feel better so I can come back, get through this next week. Actually challenge me, make me stronger. So when God chose to fill the Bible up with, with examples like this, he wasn't just thinking of that one woman. He was thinking of generations that would read this story. And he wasn't just thinking of those Pharisees. He was thinking of generations who would read this story. And he was knowing in his design that there was a need for the church to consistently and regularly come back to this story because it's so vivid. You've all heard it before. We all know it. It's extreme. It's harsh. It's like, ooh, this is a, a rough scene. And I want, you to, I want you to consider with me the title, A Church Caught in Adultery. That's with intention. There is an opportunity for us as believers to, in sincerity, pursue the Lord, but in that same sincerity miss things that become blinders that allow us to become people that God never intended us to become. It's possible for you with great intention towards God to walk down a path where you learn some of his ways, you get better at doing the things you feel are right, and eventually become someone who's capable of erring on both sides of this story. And so I want to introduce the concept to you guys today. The story is for you, you adulterer, the story is for you, you Pharisee. You're both. You're both. I'm both. I'm both. Jesus, when he was talking to me about this, he said, talk to them about who I saw when I saw her. And I said, you saw me. You saw me. You saw me. You saw someone who failed in their faithfulness to you and their faithfulness to people that you reached out and stood in the place of and saved. And I said, it wasn't just that woman. We are all that woman. We are all desperately in need of someone to stand in our place and to let us off the hook with mercy. And then if you consider the story for a little bit longer, you realize, well, who was it that was coming after that woman that day? It was her family. It was, this, it was her fellow Jews. It was the very culture and society she had grown up in and been raised in. These are small towns, small places. Everyone knew each other. And I think for a moment, and I think about the ones who were dedicated, had dedicated their lives to honoring the Lord, bringing his kingdom to pass. And they're the ones that are bringing her to Jesus in this scene. And they're saying... 
What do you think we should do with her? How should we kill her? It's really strange to consider a people who were so quick to execute judgment to those who were their very family and that were, were so close and so known to them. But the stories that we find in the Bible, they're smaller in context than our culture that we're in. We think of ourselves living in the Bay Area and Jesus arrives in the Bay Area on a horse. You're like, what part does he arrive in? Oh, he's in Burlingame. Oh, I better go find him. I wonder what he's doing over there. I wonder if I'll even be able to track him down. I found the horse, but he's walking around somewhere. I can't find him anywhere. He's, oh, he's on the fifth floor of that apartment. He's having a house group meeting. By the time you get in and, and get there, he's done. He's moved on. You have no way of tracking him down in a culture as big and prominent as ours. He makes a digression into the city of San Francisco. He's over there hanging out. You're like, where is he? Oh, he could be a thousand places. This is not the culture and the location that he was arriving in when he came into Jerusalem. It was a big bustling town by those days' standards. But I want to remind you, if you've ever been to, I've been to Israel, and if you've ever been, it always talks about the Mount of Olives, how Jesus retreated there. It's literally like within eye's distance of downtown Jerusalem. It's on a mountain that's like right there, and it's half covered with homes and buildings today. It's really small geography. It was it's like you knew where everyone was at all times. You knew where Jesus hung out with his friends. You knew like what restaurants or stores they would go to. You knew when he was coming in to town to talk in the in the sanction like the the temple. People knew where he would go. It's like oh he's going to teach right there tomorrow, and that's how this story starts. He's having a good day. And all these disciples are having a good day. And they're all eager early in the morning to meet him there because he'd just woken up. He'd slept on the Mount of Olives the night before, just right over there. And he walks into town. And all the people that were there probably the day before and are really excited to hear him, they sit down and they're quiet. And he's talking to them. This is a really good day. Then all of a sudden, the situation comes up. The situation that sadly points to everything that we will ever need. We need awareness of our own sin and our own nature to sin. But we also need awareness of our capacity to be like the Pharisees. And so my goal today for you is twofold. One, I want to bring you into a place of appreciating how Jesus sees us, how beautiful we are to him. And it's not just for you, it's for you to understand that if I don't see others this way, I am not seeing the way Jesus sees. And I'll tell you, if I can't see others in the same way that Jesus sees me, I probably am blinded in much the same way that the Pharisees were blinded. There was something going on with them where they felt that they had better insight into the nature and ways of humanity that justified their actions to cancel mercy and execute judgment. And you say, oh, it's Old Testament. That's, they were fulfilling the law. It's really interesting because in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, the prophets consistently say, love mercy, show mercy, be merciful. And it's, it's, it's like, why would they 
do that over and over? Why would they say, they knew the law. They knew how strong the law was. They were saying there's a core need from this day and forever for us to lean into, grab hold of, and actually embrace and be defined by mercy. And so I want to talk to you about first the, let's talk first about the Pharisee concept and why you're probably a little Pharisaical in your ways, okay? You got a little bit of Pharisee in you, and maybe the way you dress, I don't know how you look when you're not here. Maybe you're into robes, maybe you walk around with sandals, maybe it's that, or maybe it's something more sinister, it's, it's lurking inside of you, and I'm raising my hand and I'm gonna tell you a personal story and how, how God graciously comes and undoes these, these pharisaical underpinnings to us. Look at the first, this next slide really quick. I, I, have, a, I have a phrase that kind of stuck in my mind. It's compensatory leaven. All right, compensatory leaven. I'm going to tell you a story about myself. All right, my family. So when I was a young man, my, my parents were a little disengaged. My father was a little rough. He was a little alcoholic, little party guy. And my mom, increasingly throughout my childhood, grabbed further and further a hold of faith. She became like, she was a Catholic when I was growing up, but she really got more and more interested in, more and more curious about Jesus herself. She started to pursue him in the way she knew. Eventually, she found herself active and participating in a Assemblies of God church, very different than Catholic at that time, but she was there by herself with me, and my dad would never go, and, and there was this tension in the house, but the reality was he was going his way and she was going hers, and over time, they divorced. And so they divorced when I was a freshman in high school, and I was beautiful. Just wanna make sure you guys understand that. So just fast forward, if rewinding back to that era of my life, as most freshmen in high school are, they're just beautiful people. Um, they're, they're their own little people, they're humans. Uh, I, was, I was a single child until I was eight, and then my brother arrived, and that was just way too late. Like, what's this guy doing here? He doesn't belong here. He, all he's doing is taking attention, time, and money away from me. Um, we, we got over it, it took about, about 45 years. We're working, we're working on it. <laughs> eight years is a big gap. For a, for a family, but that was the gap in our family, and it ended up just being me, my brother, and my mom. So what does that do to a young man? I was a, a smart kid. I did well in school. I was a shy kid, didn't like a lot of attention, was a little passive, a lot passive. I was a good baseball player. I was also a good pizza and pasta eater, so I was a really big kid. Uh, my mom just fed me macaroni and pasta and cheese and cheese and pasta and pasta, and I loved it, and that was really nice of her. I was a big kid. <laughs> I was strong and big and tall, um, but that, you know, that extra weight and being a young man and all that stuff, I, I had not just from the weight, but from what was going on with my family, all kinds of reasons to be insecure, and I was an insecure person. I was a lovely person to a point, but I was an insecure person. And so what I leaned into was academics and baseball, and I was really good at both. And so I spent a lot of times making sure that I, I got good grades. My grandma valued that, my mom valued it, my dad valued it. 
And I, I was in all the honors classes at a Catholic high school, and then I was on the baseball teams at the Catholic high school. And over the years, and it really began, interestingly, around the freshman year of high school for me, God began to kind of come and go, hey, do you want to be mine? And I knew about it because I go to church all the time, but it was a personal thing where I felt his prompting at the age of 12. Interesting correlation around the same time my dad and my mom were splitting up. It just God moved in and in his way said, I'm going to be your dad. You don't know what's going on, but this is what's going on. And I said, yes. And I said, yes. So I became really good at academics, really good at baseball, and really good at being a Christian because that became a focus because I felt him sincerely at the age of 12. He was really there. And it was real. But I was still this wonderful ball of goo that was shaped and molded by generations of contribution from my dad, his dad before him, his dad before him. I had insecurity that was real. It was real. Not totally crazy to the point where I was like out of control, but it was a real defining characteristic of who I was. And so I started to lean into different things that gave me confidence. And I've already defined those three things for you that I was really good at. But you look at what that produced, and in our culture, I was celebrated because I got really good grades. In our culture, I was celebrated because I was one of the best, if not the best, baseball player on the team for most of my years. And then in church, I was celebrated because I was a good kid. I was performing really heavily in all three of those categories. And it's an interesting progression as you watch that 12-year-old become a 13, 14, 15, now 16, 17-year-old. I was confident. I was in a lot of ways, but not confident in a lot of ways inside. But man, was I in charge of a lot of different environments. I did a lot of things a lot of people would say, this guy's got it. He's a strong, that's a strong, he's a leader. That guy's a leader. He's, he, he knows what he's doing, he's good. But what was, what was brewing in there, this huge effort was materializing in really good ways. But there was still a part of me in, on the inside that was affected by this core insecurity and identity thing that was really obvious in hindsight. My dad's not there. It's broken. He disappeared even though he was nearby. Church leaders and fathers in the church were, were sometimes there, but there wasn't a lot of stability there. Um, you as a young man are just trying to be solid and whole. Best efforts, you create who you're going to be to survive the situation you're in. And so what ended up happening was this little Pharisee guy shows up in me. It was me. I don't want you to be confused. This little Pharisee, this little Pharisee arrives. It was me, Vince McCary, the Pharisee, 18-year-old. What does that look like? I didn't wear a robe. I didn't preach to everybody, although my whole baseball team wouldn't cuss around me, and I'd lead prayer before every, every baseball game on every baseball team I was on in, outside of school and high school, Went to college, did it there too, stood up for my faith, stood up strong. 
I was pure and I was right. I didn't date girls, I didn't do the stuff. I was like going to youth group even when I went to college. But there's this thing in there that's like, there's a brokenness still present even though all the external expressions are kind of lined up and they're right. I'm doing all the right things, but there's something brewing that's deeper, that's stronger, that begins to show up, and it's really crazy because all these good God things are happening in the midst of this. But then you fuel all of that confidence with things like prophetic gifting. I had that too, eventually. Like God would talk to me and I'd hear it. I'd go tell somebody, hey, God told me this. And they'd start crying. How do you know that? That's amazing. I'm like, see, I'm good at this. Like, this is cool. And it wasn't bad or misintended. Intentions were good. But there was still this core thing of needing identity through performance and things going well and going right. And I just found myself capable in the most subtle of ways. If you were to ask me, like, Vince, like, what about you as a Pharisee? If you were to ask me in those days, nothing. I'm good. I'm really understand. Like, I'm good. Like, I can, I can tell you about the Bible. Like, what do you want to know? Like, what? Like, I am really sharp. Um, I can prove it to you. God talks to me. See, he wouldn't talk to me and leave that part out, would he? Like, here, let me tell you about you. Let me help you with, help, let me help you, with you. That would be a good response to, do you have anything going on with you? No, let me help you with you. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Um, but what, what began to show up was the ability to assess people. Assess people in a way where I was prone to evaluate what was going on with people. And it always had a hint of, these are the issues that I see. These are the concerns I have with this one. These are the areas where it's obvious that there's something not good. And you just, just pause for a minute. This is an 18-year-old boy. Do you think an 80-year-old man would say, that's a good way to think? You should approach life with that lens. You should be assessing whether or not you trust people. You should be assessing like, what spiritual dysfunction is in their life. You should be aware of where they err in their understanding of Jesus. You should be aware of their limitations, maybe in faith or in practice, or their sin. Hey, just like... Do you know what's going? Do you, you know if they're sinful or not? That's a really good way of living. I don't think I know one 80-year-old that would say that's a good approach to life. I think they'd say the opposite. Why are you concerned? Another way. Why are you judging these people? And it's interesting because I was excelling in all walks of life. God wasn't absent. God wasn't saying, I'm not going to talk to you until you get this cleared up. He continued to be there and be kind and careful and loving with me. But I'll tell you, over decades, I found that there was, there was something going on to where God had to make a change in me, even though all this good stuff was going on around me. And I, I wonder if we understand God's priority for our perspective about other people. 
His priority isn't that you can diagnose. He's not impressed that you can call out sin. He doesn't have any interest in you identifying other people's weaknesses. That is 0% of his concern for what the church should be doing. The world does not need problem identifiers. Not at all. 0%. Neither does the world need people that will consistently identify problems within culture and say, these are the issues that we have to stand against. Those, they speak for themselves. It's really clear and really obvious what is strongly for or strongly against, like the simple basics of the, of the word. What, what the world needs is people who can see with the same eyes that Jesus saw with, who don't have any hint of that identity that is derived from being a little bit above everyone else. I said compensatory leaven. You guys know the scripture. That's the next slide. Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus telling his disciples, he specifically said, it's your job to watch out for these things because they'll, they'll sneak into your way of doing life. You'll find yourself in a place where you're quick to identify your differences from other people who are trying to serve the same God. And if you allow yourself to really grab hold of those differences, highlight those differences, camp on those differences, you're going to quickly find that you're, you're collecting into these little cells where you all identify together. It's like we agree that's with everything, right? Okay, who else is not in this circle? Let's make sure they stay over there. Or we can go help them by telling them why they have all these problems. They could be free if they would think this certain way or do life in this certain like vein, like we are, because it's working for us today. Let's say today. Jesus was aware that this is not just a minor thing. You, I, I just feel like he spent so much time wrestling with the Pharisees in the New Testament. You go, why did he spend so much time? Like, why is there so much Bible devoted to Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees? It's because it was the foundation of the church. It was, it was basically, it's religion. It is the, it's a core representation of what we all step into when we step into a life of faith. We're faced with the same spirit that these guys embraced. So a Pharisee embraces this idea that I know more about God and the ways of God. I'm better at performing for him. And therefore, I'm above you in a way and maybe it's not, and like I say, it doesn't have to be with bad intention at its onset. But what it leads to is a separation of me and you. And I'm constantly doing this, looking down in one way or another. And depending on the, the absolute need that I have, my intensity could be here or it could be here. And if we look at these Pharisees that are dragging a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus dragging her and saying, what should we do with her? Their intensity obviously was here. Paul's was here. He was out to kill and destroy anyone who was agreeing with this new gospel of Jesus. And so for all of us, it's, it's really important to understand. You don't have to be at this level for you to be at risk. Jesus said, watch for the leaven. Just a little hint 
that there might be some Pharisee in your doing, in your thinking, because it'll mess up the whole loaf of bread. You're a beautiful loaf of bread, and it will destroy the whole thing if a little bit gets in there, and it's your job to stay on guard. So God, in his mercy, totally upended my life and allowed my life to turn like full somersault over to where everything I had was stripped away. Everything. I was successful in my education. I was successful in baseball until that was done. I was successful in relationships. All of it went away. And God said, I want to know, do you want your inheritance? I want to know if you want to walk with me. And the answer was yes, but I'm afraid because I feel like I can't trust you. But what happened in that process was I, I, a new foundation was laid because I couldn't trust him because all of the things I had performed for years had failed me. But I thought that that was him kind of putting this life together. The truth was it was me putting a life together and him being gracious and kind of covering it and what we need, what I needed, was I needed a reset that said, I can't earn any of this. I'm not deserving of anything. I'm not better than anyone. I'm sinful. I'm that woman who is drugged before Jesus. And God said, I know. You always have been. That's the foundation of all things in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs the kingdom of God. So that, that entry into day one with God requires there to be this humility about us that is so profound and foundational that there's no Pharisee in the door. There's no part of that Pharisaical spirit that can enter because it's completely contrary, completely opposite to the foundations of who we are supposed to be in Christ. And so for you, I just want, I want to invite you into honest assessment of yourself Honest assessment of your judgments towards others. The Bible is full of opportunities for you to be reminded, don't do it. Don't judge one another. That's God's job. Your job is to love tirelessly, endlessly, without any limit. You never judge the why. You never assess from a psychological standpoint or a humanistic standpoint, oh, these are the reasons this person is this way. That, there is there's so little value in the kingdom for that approach to humanity. You look at them with love, and you look at them in the way that Jesus did. And so let's look at this last passage, or this last slide. It says, who was that woman? And I just want to ask you the question, are you capable of seeing the way that Jesus saw? And I, I'll tell you that's a work in progress for all of us, but it must be a priority. It has to transcend your priorities for favor, blessing, spiritual gifts, um, anointing. Your ability to see people with the eyes that Jesus saw that woman will define your ability to carry blessing, favor, anointing, spiritual gifts, all those things. You have, all of, you have access to all of that stuff, but if you don't have the pure heart that sees people from a position of they deserve the same mercy and love that I have received from Jesus. If that is not your foundation in your interaction with every human being, there's something broken there that has to be reset. And so I just want to encourage us. 
Jesus looked at her and he saw his daughter. He saw a beautiful woman who for, I'm sure, a a myriad of reasons fell into a life where she was making bad choices. But he saw her and he loved her and he said, I won't throw a stone at you either. He knew that she deserved it, but he also knew that there was an opportunity coming for her where his death would give her the opportunity for new life. Why skip that step? He gave her mercy, maybe, I don't know what the timeline was, but maybe a year early. And I just want you to have this opportunity when you die to say, I showed mercy to so many people. I'm pumped. Like, Jesus, what, like, what did you do while you were down there? I showed mercy to so many. I loved everybody. I loved, like, sincerely loved everybody. You mean the poor guy that just kept asking you for money? Oh, yeah, I was great at loving him. I didn't give him money every time. That's not healthy, but I loved him. I smiled at him. I said he was crazy. I joked with him. I didn't let him bother me. I didn't judge him for being there every week. What about the poor woman that just wouldn't stick on the path of clarity? Oh, yeah, I didn't even worry about why she was crazy. I just loved her. Like, why? What is, like, what is me trying to figure out why she's that way? This, she's my unique opportunity to show love, even though she was wild, right? What about your family member who really is not great to you or towards you? You show love in the way that God prompts you to show love. You show mercy in the way God prompts you to show mercy. And there's boundaries and there's healthy ways to navigate with ones that are really close. But you do it and you, you think to yourself, man, she, that person doesn't bother me anymore. Because I know that I'm not in any way above or below her. Like we're all trying our best to get clear paths for this life. And, and the moment you think you understand things well enough to start dispensing judgment on others is the moment that you will find yourself less and less satisfied with your own experience. You'll find yourself heavy, burdened by by things that aren't working out, things that are failing even though you think they shouldn't fail because there's this expectation growing in you that performance leads to certain results. And the truth of the matter is, it's not about our labor, it's not about our work, it's about the grace of God flowing through vessels that are humble and pure and able to really truly engage with life and love life. And you can't do it well unless you can really love people. So I just, this morning guys, you are not an adulterer, you are not a Pharisee, but we all have the DNA of those that could be, and we all have a great, great need for a Jesus that shows unending mercy And so let's be grateful this morning that Jesus has shown us that mercy. Let's be grateful and let's re-invite him just to cover us and just forgive us for the mindsets maybe that we've carried even into this last month or year where, where God has not been, Jesus in his perspective has not been the perspective I've carried. I'm doing my best and maybe you're like me. You were a 13 year old that was just doing their best but there was, there's so much defensiveness you're, you're compensating to try to just stand on your own two feet. The truth is, you don't have to. He sees you, he loves you, and he wants you to be free and just to love. You don't have to perform for him another day in your life. 
And he is so proud to be your dad and your, your sponsor, <laughs> your stand-in, your hero. That, who, that is who Jesus is. And so I just want to encourage you today. Let's just take a minute. Uh, Stephen, I'm going to af- ask you to come up and pray for the group. But let's just take a minute. And um, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be seen with eyes of love like you saw that woman that day. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be invited into a family where you see us through eyes of mercy and you encourage us, God, to avoid at all costs the leaven of the Pharisees that would judge or bring others into scrutiny where you are not bringing them into scrutiny. Lord, I pray that you would just purge any Phariseeism out of this church completely. I pray that there would be no one here that is ever comfortable judging one another that we would just be a place where there's great grace, great mercy, great love. And Lord, that you would teach us your ways of love so that we could walk uprightly and we could walk with a purity so we could extend your hand of mercy to all who need it. And Lord, that you would endorse that hand with power and grace to change these people's lives. So Lord, we ask for forgiveness where forgiveness is needed and we ask for grace in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to have Stephen kind of lead us into the next section. We've got prayer. People that will stand with you guys and pray if you need prayer. But I love you. Thanks for letting me share this morning.